Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for the third out of four episodes about Jeanette McCurdy's memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. If you haven't checked out the first two episodes, which covers chapters 1 through 47, definitely go back and check those out. Today's episode is going to cover chapters 48 through 71. And before we get started, I want to give a trigger warning. Uh, We continue to discuss some of the tough topics that are covered in this book. Uh, This particular section includes conversations on eating disorders, continued conversation about, you know, sexual misconduct and manipulation, and also kind of like the family emotional incest uh, type challenges that the book's author had dealt with. So uh, please be advised if those things are triggering to you, definitely feel free to skip this episode and we'll see you back on the next one. I like to think that this uh, third section of the book was a little bit lighter then um last week i i think that if we made it through all of the different topics of last week there's really the only way to go is up from there um so we got a little bit more uh insight into kind of the the family dysfunction kind of some things from her childhood that she brought into adulthood and some new things that popped up. Um, and we get some glimpses at hope towards um, the end of that, more specifically her finally starting therapy. So I'll kind of um, start out with like um, initial reactions or anything that kind of jumped out at anybody. One of the big things for me was when she finally did go to therapy and she was upset that she had to challenge the notions of maybe her mom was not who she thought she was. I think that was a big one for me. Um, I like this section of the book while lighter is where her mom did die. <laughs> so <laughs> like the penultimate thing and it's the lightest part of the book that we've read so far. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was when the grandmother was just yelling and screaming in, in a histro- his, uh whatever she was manic and she was just listening to her on the Bluetooth in her car at the whole foods parking lot. And like, it was just really relatable. I hate saying that, but yeah. Um, and, and, and her getting therapy. And then I believe this was around the same, but her finding out about her father was around the end here. So I thought those were all interesting parts of the book. This actually was a harder part of the book for me because I had better relationships with my mother and my father and my grandparents. For me, this is where I started to get triggered because I have suffered with anorexia and eating disorders since I was probably 15. Um, I would say if you want to use the word recovery, that maybe I've been in recovery for 10 years or more, but it's still like some of these things, it's just like, I don't want to say it's like, um, well, an eating disorder is kind of like a friend 
unfortunately, it becomes this part of you and this identity that you have. And reading this is like, oh, I know her. <laughs> I don't like her. <laughs> can, we, can we read something else now? <laughs> so this part where I can see where it would seem lighter, this is where the book started to get harder for me. Um, but I appreciate it because um, she's so real. And I think a lot of people don't fully understand eating disorders. And for her to kind of give more of an insight of how your brain processes things. I'm hoping that it is an encouragement to people who are either suffering from an eating disorder or know people that have one that they can maybe get a little better grip on what it all means. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I hadn't, I guess when I say it from my perspective, when I say, oh, this seemed a lot lighter, of course, that's from the bias of you know, things that directly would trigger me. Um, I I would say that the stuff last time was definitely more triggering, but um, the now that I think of it, they in the past two meetings that we've had, there were kind of like vapors of the eating disorder and kind of like, you know, small mentions of things, but this time it was really fully on display and it, it got very um, kind of in-depth and graphic. So, um, yeah, come to think of it, I can see how that that would definitely um, be a big one. And I know that's going to be one of the topics that we um, kind of cover today to the level that everyone is comfortable. But thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah, I think like Angela, um, the other chapters, they're definitely upsetting to me to read. They're also upsetting with my background as um, being a teacher. Um but I don't think that I shared as many of those personal experiences. To me, um, it wasn't even so much the eating disorders. Unfortunately, I think that can be common for many women to not have a great relationship with food. So while some of that resonated with me, um, what really, and I don't even know that this section of the book got into it as perhaps intensely, but what really started making me feel a bit more uncomfortable was um, analyzing her romantic relationships and the inability to, uh, it was really disturbing to me how that one guy was at least seemingly trying to be nicer. And she was talking about how it was getting to the cycle where she should probably just, um, you know, just done things. And um, I had been reading this book and I had been reading it with you all and I had been enjoying it. And um, I was talking to my friend and I said, you know, I, I feel pretty fortunate um, to have more of an outside lens to some of these things. And uh, my best friend, she knows me so well and knows the things that I've dealt with, said, don't worry, your moment is coming um, in a very, you know, <laughs> only the way that a best friend can. And uh, so I finished reading one of the sections and I texted her. I said, I came to my moment. And she said, yep. So that was my experience Thank you. So I'm going to I'm going to hop in with uh, some notes that I took uh, because the um, the eating disorder was definitely a big part of this section. And um, when I do the podcast episode, I'll make sure to put like a trigger warning because uh, I know that's a big one for some people. But yeah, I'm going to just kind of go through some of the, the points about that that jumped out to me and we can kind of begin the discussion around that. So some things that jumped out to me were that while the mom was in the hospital kind of dying, um, she was jealous of the fact that her brothers had lost their appetite. And so then she 
you know, goes to Burger King because she's hungry. And then she shares about how she tried to purge kind of for, you know, after she ate that. And then mom does wake up and judges her for eating that Burger King. And then she kind of gets to that small voice again, because her mom has the ability to kind of shrink her. And she says, well, I didn't get mayo. Um, And then, of course, they have that refrain of how at the beginning of the book, uh, she's trying to like get her mom to react by saying, I'm finally down to 98 pounds. And there's just so many like new details we get about her disorder eating. It's kind of a bulimia that and it's almost like she's striving for anorexia. And, um, you know, some of the side effects are that, you know, it's very common for women with the eating disorder to have their monthly cycle stop. She's been ha- she's been fighting with this eating disorder for over 10 years. And some of the, you know, other things like her, the bulimia is making her throat bleed. Um, her teeth are softer. She's getting cavities. And like I said, she said her goal is to almost graduate to anorexia, where it's not like the binge purge cycle, but it's just don't eat. She also kind of gets into some suicidal ideation because she talks about how she wouldn't be upset if she had a bulimia-induced heart attack because apparently the risk of heart attack is higher, um, which is something new to me. I did not know that, um, but she's uh, was almost like that would be a relief for her. So, but yeah, I'll kind of open it up to y'all because I know that was heavy. That really stuck out to me too, especially the way she almost had a hierarchy for eating disorders. Um, I think that's something that, um, is unfortunately a bit of our human nature when things aren't going very well. Um, it's well, you know, like at least I'm not as doing bad as, you know, whosoever and not to say that that's right, but you know, well, I'm making more money than so-and-so or my house isn't as much of a dump as like, I think sometimes I hear those things or have said those things when I'm struggling But then it was quite the flip to me when she mentioned the bulimia induced heart attack. It's like she didn't even want to be on that. She wasn't even concerned about that hierarchy anymore. She was just ready to throw it in. I, I never tried to, maybe I tried to throw up once, but it was definitely not my thing. So I couldn't relate to her making herself sick, but I could relate to the wanting to get back to the anorexia thing. It's much easier. It's, um, I feel probably you have more control with that than you do with the bulimia. Um, because you're restricting, but I did have moments of binging. So like when she talked about the Burger King, I kind of laughed. It's not funny, but like when my mom finally took me to the doctors because I self-diagnosed at 18 that I was anorexic. So she took me to the doctors. They took all kinds of blood. I passed out and threw up all over the office, like four or five times passed out. They didn't send me to the hospital. My mother didn't say anything. And when they got my blood work back, they were like, I don't understand how her cholesterol is so high. Well, the reason my cholesterol was so high, even though I was anorexic was because I would binge the biggie size of McDonald's fries. That was really one of the only things that I ate that felt safe. And I had rituals around food. Like I would have to set up the box of cereal and the bowl and the spoon and the milk, and I would have to pour it a certain way. 
and do different things. And then I could eat the cereal. So no one could make my cereal for me. And so some of the things that she said in here, like they sound ridiculous, but they made a lot of sense to me because I've had that mindset, that eating disordered mindset. And, and the sad thing is, you know, people can see that you look like I've looked at her Instagram since we started reading this together. And all I can think of is I understand she's in therapy, but it still doesn't look okay to me. Um, and so it's hard to know that she's still somewhere in that realm. It's definitely hard because when you have an eating disorder, one sounds worse than the other, but they're like, there were no support groups when I got diagnosed. So I actually took myself to an overeaters anonymous group and they were, they were pissed. They were like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I don't have anywhere else to go. I have nowhere else to go. And it took probably a couple of weeks um, for us to all kind of get settled and realize that everybody's mindset was wrong. And that's what we had in common and that it was okay for me to be there. But I understood because group therapy doesn't really work well for eating disorders because I was in one and this girl was deathly ill. And all I could think of was, that's so awful. I wish I were that then. So it's... um it's a lot to unpack, so I won't take up too much time, but um, it's hard knowing that she had to go through all this and didn't really have anyone seeing her because that's what I always felt unseen. Like when somebody weighs 89 pounds, like you see that, but nobody ever said anything to me. Nobody ever did anything. Nobody ever stepped up or fought. I had to do that on my own. And she had to do that on her own. And, um, I'm glad she did it. I'm glad she got into therapy and it's a rough, it's a long road recovering from eating disorders. Thank you. And something that, um, came to mind when you were sharing that, um, and also what Brianna had shared is that comparison is a big thing going on. And as we're like watching you know, kind of going with her through her adolescence into adulthood. Comparison is just a, you know, a big thing that happens during that that age range. But especially if you're like struggling, my favorite quote um, is that comparison is a thief of joy. So when we perceive ourselves as doing worse than others and we compare, we make ourselves feel worse. Uh, or in some of some cases, we perceive ourselves as doing better than somebody else, we can make somebody else feel bad. And I take that one step further. I say, well, comparison can be the thief of joy within your own self too. Uh, Because people sometimes will compare themselves with a former self, right? Like, oh, when I was in high school, I weighed this, you know, or um, they'll compare themselves with a perceived future self where they're like, well, I want to be a, you know, CEO executive, but I'm currently, you know, working part-time doing this, right? The 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 quote kind of is universal in that when we start to compare from anything other than the here and now, it's usually going to be negative. And I think what y'all were sharing about, you know, disordered eating and and stuff like that is that it's comparison on a much higher level 
it's it's very extreme and you know interwoven through there we saw a lot of like depression anxiety kind of a lot of other mental health things uh interwoven but thank you for that observation on her um instagram i haven't looked at it but that that's definitely something to kind of keep in mind that you know most like most mental health things it's not like a oh, I've written a book about all this, so I'm healed now. You know, she's she's still probably dealing on a daily basis with those those internal um, thoughts and things. And um, I wanted to add one more thing that really jumped out at me about this topic was the, there was an event that she went to and her, I want to say she was supposed to present something or whatever, and um, she was overwhelmed. I think there was something going on like with her mom, I, I can't remember the specific context, but basically there were some mini uh, hamburgers and she just started like binge eating because, you know, um, her emotions were all over the place. And the goal was to find a place to purge afterwards. But she had this really great therapist who kind of came alongside of her um, in her journey and um, she didn't know that the therapist, I think the therapist was running late or something. She was supposed to like support her through this event. And just as she's getting ready to like step away from these, uh, mini burgers or whatever, the therapist comes up and says, I'm happy that you're eating, but we're not going to purge today. And she completely lost it. Like, because she was finally realizing that in order to heal, she had to, relinquish that control of being able to keep doing the cycle. And she even talked about it. She said it was a everyday kind of like, you know, the, the goal was not to purge. And then she would do that. And, and the therapist seems to be like sticking with her through that. Um, so I just wanted to share that, that moment, because while it's, you know, she's really fighting at this point in the story, um, there's a sense of hope because she's not only dealing with this alone now internally she's got some like expert help so i'm gonna be quiet on that one but i'm interested to hear y'all's takes on that i like that you brought that up and that was one part of this that i've been thinking about that's not as introspective to me i think this story is very very sad because it's a recanting of all the times that she was failed failed by parents, failed by grandparents, failed by agents, failed by the director, um, failed by, you know, should have been friends, failed by, you know, that huge age gap boyfriend. Um, and so when there's the introduction and she makes that commitment that she's going to do better, and now you mentioned that therapist, um, you know, the things that coming to mind for me right now is um, that's someone who didn't fail her and who also who saw what was going on. And Angela, I think you had just mentioned with the eating disorder that um, I think you shared your experience and I hope I didn't get this wrong was that no one had said something to you. And that's kind of what I was reading about too. Like, why is no one saying anything? There's no way that somebody can be acting this way. Like what the heck is going on with Colton? Why is no one saying anything about this behavior and these extreme shifts in body and weight and this? And so, um, you know, just reading about that and hearing you speak now, it also kind of makes me think about like, how can I see people better? Maybe not in a way that I need to save everyone, but how can I say the right things? How can I notice in the moment 
Um, when do I have the power to not be the person that's going to fail? And I, I just think that's what's so sad about her story is that she was just let down by like every adult for years. Her grandpa did try though. I mean, he did, the doctor noticed when she went for that one appointment when she was younger and mentioned anorexia, somebody at the church had said something to the mom. Um, but the mom was that like gatekeeper and kept her from actually understanding what was happening to her. Um, so even when you do see somebody, I think it's good to know that even if you see somebody and you say something and nothing comes of it, you've still done something good. Um, That's a really good point. Because um, I know I couldn't, even if people had tried to say things to me, like people said stuff to me in college when I was living in a dorm. I didn't go to college till I was 20. So I was like really old <laughs> to be a freshman in the dorm. Um, and once they did find out, like, it was like the whole floor tried to get me to eat and do all these things. Like they actually walked me down to the cafeteria and all sat with me to get me to eat something. And um, I was just like, no, because at that point it had been so many years with nobody noticing that I was like, no, you don't get to help me. So it's, you know, don't, if someone rejects you when you notice something, don't take that as a bad thing. It's a seed that you've planted and that will get watered eventually. So just be encouraged that even if you notice something like this, um, drinking, cause she, you know, the drinking, the eating disorder all combined, you know, she's lucky she didn't have a heart attack. I mean, I have heart problems because of what I did because you're with anorexia, your body eats muscle. So I have heart problems now, but, um, yeah, just be encouraged. I think the amount of drinking she was doing was insane that nobody called that out. Like one chapter I was reading, she said she mixed like vodka and wine together for her drink. And I'm just like, the fact that none of your friends are questioning the amount that you're drinking, if nothing else. I found it interesting that she gets drunk for the first time. And then almost immediately she goes on a bender for, I think it said three weeks. Uh, I think it was her and her her um, friend. I think his name is Colton. Um, is that the? I think that's the gay guy that she's good friends with. So they were drinking together, and then the first time she got drunk, she she realized that it was a way to forget the control and the um, the anxiety that the eating disorder and just the, her life not going the way she wanted to. It, it was an escape. Um, and she was able to escape her mom's judgment and all the insecurities about her body. Unfortunately, you know, and we don't know uh, which came first, the, the chicken or the egg, right? Because uh, in addition to having anxiety and an eating disorder, and clearly she's developing some depression and now alcoholism. So she's dealing with increased anger, irritability, and she was kind of like apathetic about a lot of things anyway, like uh, kind of checked out of her emotions. But now she's really just like doesn't have much um, like spark to her, you know. So it definitely started to like spiral down. And there was some really heavy drinking uh, going on. And I think all of this is while she's uh, filming the spinoff show, which we'll probably get into. 
and she was having, I mean, whether or not it was common for the age or whatever, but she was having just like not fair feelings about Ariana Grande and what she was allowed to do. I mean, effectively what she was allowed to do kind of come and go during that show. So like not happy at work, not happy in her relationships. Mom's actively dying, which like she's been talking about actively dying her entire life anyway. So at that point, is it a blessing, a curse? Like you don't know. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was like when she got sick and got taken to the ICU, the mom, it was mom's really sick. It's time, blah, blah, blah. And because it's happened so many times, she was like, yeah, okay. I also have these other things going on, you know, and that's kind of used against families, like at least in families like this, where that like kind of insensitivity of like in this emergency, you didn't act and drop everything to do whatever. And like the whole, like, I have a bad feeling that this time is going to be the time. Like that said 100% of the time. (laughs) And so that it did end up being like super serious. Like there's some guilt toward that. That's like, if everything's an emergency, then what does an emergency entail? I mean, like mom showed videos of like my cancer is coming back from like five, her earliest memories. So well before then, I think. So um, to me, that was, it was, it was a rough one, but I don't know. I just, I thought some of it was very age appropriate and some of it was very much like, you know, they're getting more attention with the Ariana Grande thing, you know, like mom always got attention. Ariana Grande got attention. She's not getting a lot of attention at all. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I missed the name as to who said it earlier, but like just being seen, like nobody's watching the intake of drinking. Nobody's watching how little she's eating. Nobody's watching every time she goes after she eats, she disappears to her bathroom for a while to do, you know, I'm sure she's not packing toothpaste, you know, so these kind of things are happening, but yeah. To piggyback off of that, as I was, as I was going through that section, I was like, oh, here's mom's codependency again with like calling her frantic, like, hey, I'm because the surgery she was about to go into was to, I guess, fix a mastectomy. Uh, She had gotten an implant after having a mastectomy and it's supposed to be like a routine thing. Uh, she gets on the phone, um, uh, dad gets on the phone and says, Hey, don't worry about it. She's just freaking out, you know, but it was a, you know, it goes to show that even up until the end, it was like, a um, because Jeanette was the best friend, right. She was the, you know, she was placed in that, that adult role as a, a friend to a relatively unstable adult. Right. And so she feels that need, even in her adulthood, she's like hanging out with her friend, like driving a nice convertible. And she feels like she needs to drop everything, even though she had like girls night out right now, like you said, it just so happened that that was the one time that she didn't go that mom falls into a coma. But um, yeah, it kind of, you know, I mean, we heard, we heard the title of the book is I'm glad my mom died. It was just a very a vicious like codependency toxic cycle um up until the end well and they meant, didn't mention it but her mom's actively dying and the nurse is like hey you know you look like cat from iCarly like do you know like can i get your picture like how inappropriate that is um 
And when she, she said something really profound there, she was like, you know, there's two types of people, people who get loss and people who don't, you know, like people who understand loss and don't. And I just discard people who don't, um, like that was really profound when she said that. And that, I mean, it's really tone deaf to be doing that while your mom's in hospice while being a nurse. Um, she wanted a picture too. Like, I want to take a picture with you to prove to my daughter that, you know, you look so much like her. Very, very insensitive. Um, pretty sure you could like be sued for something like that. But yeah, I agree. That was very bizarre. You sure can, but like, you got to speak up about it. And, and a lot of people just won't, they'll just sit in their own uncomfortableness and, for those of us on the phone that don't know about patient advocacy in hospitals, please let me tell you that there are patient advocates in hospitals that are set up that that's their job to make sure that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. So next I want to shift gears to some of the relationships. So these relationships are kind of spread throughout the memoir. Uh, but in this particular section, I see a, a lot of development and deterioration in some. Um, so I'll kind of give my uh, bullet points, and then we can kind of unpack it a little bit. So I noticed that she's becoming even more emotionally detached in her relationships, um, especially as the eating disorder runs its course and also the alcohol. She's an adult now, but she's working on this spinoff show that she hates. And she's becoming emotionally detached. And because she's so emotionally detached, she loses her virginity and it's somebody she doesn't care about. She's very, um, and quite frankly, I'm pretty sure it was it was questionable consent going on there because she was kind of she was very intoxicated, and such as her kind of romantic and things like that. It's just very like weird encounters, but that happened, and you know, she actually even talks about how she has a fear of ever becoming emotionally attached to a sexual partner. And she called it, you know, if you uh, grow an attachment or anything like that to someone you're sleeping with, she called it a feminine weakness. So this is all, um, you know, stemming from this, uh, you know, kind of the example she's seeing growing up and stuff like that. That was kind of very heartbreaking to hear. Um, and then, but one, I guess, turnaround here that she finally breaks up with joe the person who's like 14 years older than her because thank god she realizes how toxic it is and so i thought that was that was a turnaround part of me started thinking when we were reading this section was like it doesn't seem like she ever really had a close relationship with her brothers and it doesn't seem like that was ever there so i i get the impression she just wasn't used to having close relationships with men so, yeah, her mom probably tainted a lot of that as well, the things she would say about the dad and things like that. But I think if you never really get comfortable talking to people in general, especially people the opposite sex, it can be a little weird when you go to try to date because you don't have a baseline of what's healthy and what's not healthy. It seemed that some of the examples she had, like, you know, the only, I mean, other than her grandfather, who we don't hear too much about, but... Um, her father was almost like powerless to the assertiveness that the mom had. Mom, you know, used her emotions to manipulate and control. And so most of the examples that she actually had were the women. And we get to hear and learn more about the grandmother in this section. 
um, I guess I, if it, if it was mentioned before, um, I didn't catch it, but, um, Jeanette in adulthood is starting to reflect on how basically her grandmother was kind of molesty. I don't think molesty is a word, but that's what I'm saying. And she kind of comes to that awareness. I, and I know it's not a word because when I typed it on my iPad, it underlined it in red, but it works. And then after her mom dies, I mean, that's a very toxic relationship, but she again uses, she knows what Jeanette's like weaknesses and it's that codependency she had with her mom and she kind of twists the knife a little bit. So if say she doesn't do something that Jeanette wants her to do, she'll say, you know, your mom is rolling in her grave and it's just like it. I think, you know, this has been a difficult book to get through. And quite frankly, when I chose this book, I had no clue how intense it would be. But um, it's definitely been, I think, a good experience to like kind of unpack it with other people. But yeah, the toxicity to that and just the the mental mind games and the, the trauma that's going on there um, is very intense. So I'm going to be quiet and let someone else speak to some of these uh, various relationships going on because a lot of stuff kind of hit the fan this section. Well, I think like dialing it all the way back, I think a big part um, to echo what was said about how she doesn't have, she doesn't really have a baseline. Like she doesn't have that normal to understand what that is because I thought it was pretty weird that she went from like first kiss to a blowjob within like just a few days like I had crushes on boys in school and you know we would play tag like I had all this in elementary school you know nothing really happens then but I still knew like who I thought was was cute if you will like I was around other people so I think it pulls back to her isolation and not having baseline um but I thought what was really sad about the flip of these relationships so when she got with the, the boyfriend that was much older, I can't remember his name, but that was that first blowjob. She had done that because that was she was so like, yeah, she was so eager to please, if that makes sense. And now it seems like along with these eating disorders, this idea of control, she's going to maintain control now. She's going to mean that maintain the upper hand in the relationships. She's going to break up with anyone before things progress and she develops feelings. Even when she decides to have, sex or doesn't really decide that was very murky she's like i guess it's fine like i guess i guess this is just something that needs to happen like there's no uh the emotion to her is is relinquishing that element of control and so i just thought it was like this drastic flip in that if someone was going to make, have more control over relationships perhaps you'd think that there would be better boundaries in place, but instead she just kind of like walled out any sort of emotion. She didn't necessarily create a healthier boundary. And I think, you know, with all that she had been through um, and then, you know, we're talking about mental health on this like book club, you know, you go through enough stuff, whether it be trauma, anxiety, depression, um, an eating disorder. Um, you know, we talked about last time, like emotional incest and things like that you go through enough stuff, you start to like become emotionally numb or like dead on the inside. Right. Um, and we've observed this kind of from the beginning, how she kind of like mutes her emotions or kind of, um, shape shifts to be a people pleaser. She had to do that from such a young age that by the time she's emerging into adulthood and is realizing that 
uh, things are looking very bleak and hopeless. Um, she's very like emotionally like detached on the inside. And that kind of puts her in some situations where, um, yes, uh, Brianna, emotional burnout is the term. Uh, and, you know, she's she's really burnt out. She's really struggling. So we kind of see how that spirals. And it, it's really hard to see these and the men in the situation, whether they be, you know, romantic partners or people who are supposed to be like in charge of her career and stuff like that, but they manipulate, they like see this vulnerability and they're just walking, you know, it, it's, it's quite heartbreaking. I know during the section, she refers to him as the creator, but his name is Dan Schneider. And he finally at the studio is getting in trouble because allegations and reports are coming through that he's emotionally abusive. It was almost comical how he was still able to work on the show, but he had to be in like his own section. And there was like an errand boy that would run back and forth. I was like, why is he even here? If And then at one point he tried to pay hush money to her. Like when they finally, the show finally ended, it was like, well, we're going to give you $300,000 um, you just have to agree that you'll never, you know, speak about this publicly. Well, uh, we saw how that worked out. She didn't take the money. And I'm certain that she's probably making more than $300,000 simply off of this book alone. So um, that hush money, um, I'm glad she didn't take it because it would have really silenced her. And her, I think this is part of her journey towards healing is being able to, you know, tell her story, speak her truth. And, you know, that would have just been another way that a man was kind of trying to control her. Um, so I was really proud of her that she um, thought to stand up for herself, despite the conditioning her family had given her all along. as like, take the money, like you need it to survive. Like, you know, um, I, I was really proud about that. Just kind of going off of what you were just talking about. Um, there's been so many articles written about him and the crazy things he did. There was allegations and uh, molestation and all types of stuff against him. So the fact that he was able to be around kids for so long unchecked is ridiculous. And you wonder too, at what extent did these parents allow these things to happen with their kids? Because at some point as a parent, you had to have heard things about what he was saying, what he was doing to these kids. And you were more concerned with the paycheck than the welfare of your kid. Yeah, I think especially with Jeanette's parents, or we more so know about her mom. We don't really hear much about her dad, but everyone who was, you know, supposed to protect her and like look out for her were wounded themselves. And they couldn't, they almost like, even if she would have said something, it makes you wonder like, how would they have been able to even receive that? Because they might be comparing it against, um, whatever they had been through their own particular trauma, they may be looking at her like, Oh, look at how good you have it. You know, it, I think that's the, and we, we talked about it more in depth in um, last week. So listeners uh, check out episode two. It is a heavy one full of triggers. I'll give you that warning, but basically the people who are supposed to protect uh, or in, in general, who are supposed to protect children, oftentimes there's cracks in the system where they fall right through. Um, and they're not just cracks, they're like gaping like holes in the system that is designed to fail. I think specifically to Jeanette, I think as far as her um, mom was concerned, if she was showering her until Jeanette was 16, 17 years old, I think if she knew something was happening with this director guy, in her mother's mind, 
I think maybe the comment that would come up, well, that's a small price to pay. Do you know what I mean? Like the way her mind worked, I could see her saying something like that to Jeanette. Like that's just part of what happens. It's not a big deal. You know, it, I don't think like you were saying, Gentle, I don't think she would have the capacity to understand that it wouldn't be okay for that to be happening. Even, even when they went to that lunch, I think more towards the beginning of the book, um, she was kind of like pushing Jeanette towards him almost. Like not, I don't, she didn't say like flirt with him or whatever, but she just, you know, don't be disagreeable. Make sure you're, you know, it just, it's very upsetting <laughs> to know that somebody like that was in such a position of power for soul. And it's not new and it's not, you know, probably going to stop anytime soon, but um, hopefully more people will talk up about that stuff. That particular section, um, you know, she was kind of like, do whatever, you know, do whatever he says, don't, don't cause any issues. And he's being real creepy, like touching her leg, massaging her, like um, trying to entice her to drink alcohol. It, it was very, very problematic. But um, it reminds me of, you know, I work with a lot of teenagers and like college students um, aged uh, as a therapist. And there's a lot of times where, you know, it may not be something like reportable going on. It might just be like a unpleasant or somewhat toxic home environment. And I, I think as a therapist, my biggest challenge is that I know that, okay, so oftentimes the parents are either encouraging the kid to go to therapy because they're the problem, or the child is begging for therapy because they need somebody who they know is healthy to talk to about what's going on. I think the hardest part for me is the, as a, as someone who's working in like a healing capacity is to see that the problem is environmental. Right. Uh, and I do try to have like conversations with parents and like even do like family work if I can, but I can only get as far as the, the parent is willing. Uh, and oftentimes they're very closed off. It's like, fix my kid. Don't speak on anything else. And I, I like to think I'm pretty like bold and blunt with people. So I'll, I'll flat out tell a parent, I'm like, if you don't change the home environment, your child's not going to get any better. And, you know, I take those risks, um, obviously trying to protect like rapport with, you know, making sure that I can still be a safe person to their kid. Fortunately, I've not had any parents like fire me for that. But I'm not afraid to speak on like if if I see a a pattern going on where you know the adults aren't being safe for the kids or not listening or things like that. I'm not afraid to advocate. Um, and sometimes I'll even like you know speak with the client and be like, hey, I'm you know I'm gonna if it's okay with you, I'm gonna talk to your parent about this and try to level it out. But it's it's really I think so. What I'm getting at is that it's hard to see that there's a, a problem with say a parent who might have their own experiences, but they're being unhealthy in some way and basically want to help this, this teenager or this young adult and knowing that no matter what I do, no matter what coping skills I give them, they have to return to this environment that's relatively unchanged. I think that's one of the hardest parts for about my job. And I think 
those of us who are here, I think we we have a teacher, we have uh, someone who works in healthcare. That that feeling of like helplessness um, kind of transcends uh, anybody who's working in like a helping capacity. So that's hard to you know see going on with Jeanette as well. One of the other things that this section of the book made me think of is the carrot and stick that he did with her being able to direct and snatching that kind of from her at the last second. And she didn't find out until like they were going to do the like episode. I think it was a last minute kind of thing. So everything that she worked for and she finally thought she was going to get kind of something out of it, like kind of keeps getting taken from her every single time she gets a leg up. So that was one of the, the sections here about this part specifically with him because like the touching and everything it's a lot of promises were made to her that none of them were delivered on either I actually took notes on that that part because it's you know we're talking about mental health here but she has a major major panic attack um right around that time so She's on the spinoff show. We know it to be Sam and Cat. I think the name of the show was I never watched it. I watched iCarly, but I never watched the spinoff. And she was lied to, basically. The whole premise of being able to or to do that show that she did not want to do, because it was supposed to be just about the character that Jeanette played, and they didn't even give her what they really promised. You know, we we talked about that in the, the first part, the creepy. Um, lunch that she had with Dan Schneider was him talking to her about, hey, you're going to get your own show. And so she's spending years, or I think they did like 40 episodes or something of the spinoff show. And she has this terrible like uh, panic attack, like meltdown in front of everybody. And I will get into how they responded to that in a second. But a quote that I wrote down is she said, this place is uh, toxic and um, bad for my already poor mental health. Um, so she actually like uh, verbalizes that. But anyway, she she has this huge panic attack because you got to think all of these things are like intersecting the eating disorder, the, you know, um, impulsive behavior, these uh, fragmented relationships, emotional detachment, depression, anxiety, exhaustion, all of this. And then she literally gets the rug pulled from under her on like directing and it all like crashes so what were y'all's reactions to how even that played out that panic attack played out and how like inadequate the response was to how she had a breakdown i think it was like i can't remember if it was like her makeup artist or somebody but it was one individual that she said she felt like was there in her corner that was trying to comfort her and it was the actor that was plays the boxer in the show that picked her up and took her back to her dressing room. But all the other adults that are making money off of this kid could care less. They're just like, oh, she's just probably being a brat. We don't care what happens. Um, you can't promise somebody something and then take it back to use it to your advantage. And that's exactly what they did. So I could imagine if that's what your ultimate goal was, because you felt like that was your way out somebody just snatching that from you and then expecting you to go out and perform like nothing happened is insane. I felt really sorry for her, but it's when I started uh, thinking back to the part about Ariana Grande with a different lens, because I had kind of been, you know, you're reading this and it's her perspective. So you're on her side. So I'm like, what the heck, Ariana, you're such a jerk. Why are you making her carry the load? And then when this happened, 
I thought maybe she was just looking out for herself. You know, she wasn't the one who was playing the, um, what was the term that she used? Being a good sport and getting all the gift cards for being a good sport. So I was reading this and I was like, why are you still being a good sport? Like, just walk off set. Just leave. Um, Again, not that I was judging her, but I was just confused. Um, I was confused as to why she's she's so unhappy, but she's going to continue to be the good sport. That's a good connection because, you know, as I was like reading that part, I'm like, I personally didn't side with Jeanette on that one because she never gave any like specific like um, wrongdoing on Ariana's part. Like she's on the spinoff show um, that Jeanette herself says is trash and it's, you know, how it was all set up and everything. So as we look at, obviously Ariana Grande has, you know, um, you know, really blown up in her music career you know, Ariana was probably like, yeah, this, this show is sinking. Let me find what my next move is. You know, it's that self-preservation thing, but you know, Jeanette, unfortunately, you know, she tried the music thing and hated it. Right. And, you know, she's trying or she's doing acting because not because she wanted to, it was because she had to, she had to support all these like dysfunctional, you know, adults that lived in her house. So I, I thought that Jeanette was actually very harsh on Ariana. And I was hoping, like, as she shared it, I was like, well, maybe at the end, she's going to be like, well, I was in a, a bad spot. Like, because she explained that she was very bitter, but there was no, like, let up on it. It was just like, you know, these chapters are very short and succinct, but it was kind of just left there. It was like, this is how I felt. And it wasn't like, but now in hindsight, I feel this way. It was just like, it was really just left there. Like, yeah, I hated her. Like, you know, and we talked about comparison as a thief of joy earlier in this, but I think if I were to critique the book, it would be that she didn't even like give some sort of resolution. Right. I, cause I, I would, I, I was like, wow, Ariana Grande. And then to me, she did come, I don't know. Cause I read it all the way. She did come to a, a resolution in regards to Ariana Grande, in my opinion. But then when, was it the directorial um, offer? Someone in, who said they wouldn't do the work if she directed? Did I, there was someone that said, I won't participate mm-hmm. if she's allowed to direct. Was that during the recent chapters? Yeah, that because- that did that did happen in this section when they told her she couldn't do the directing the excuse was somebody who is on the show will not do the show if you're directing right so she's like getting from she she's in a bad environment the adults aren't protected her and now she has someone who's on the cast saying i'm not gonna do it so she's um, and it could possibly be ariana i haven't read to the end yet um and i don't even know if that part gets resolved in the book but uh regardless you know she's truly feels like no matter what she does, it's going to crash and burn. I mean, um, I, I am not surprised at all that this panic attack happened. Um, but I also how Brianna touched on the part was where it's like, why do you always have to be a good sport? And my answer to that is that I, my, luckily I have a husband and my two kids who will call me out on anything. And they'll say, why do you always have to be nice? Why do you have to be a good sport? When the answer is, is that it's when you're taught that all the time, that's all you know. And in my case is that's all I know, but I'm learning now that I can't be if I don't, I can't protect myself 
if I continue to be the, the good sport. But my answer to that is that that's all I knew because that's how I was told to be. You have, you have to be the bigger person, you know, and everything. And you got to be the sport. You got to be the team member. But now, you know, here I'm in my 50, I'm 57 years old and I'm realizing now it's like, I don't have to be the good sport anymore, but hopefully, you know, luckily my kids know that at a younger age, but I hope she maintains that she knows that she doesn't have to be. Don't wait till you get to my age. I think that's indicative too of the social expectations of women because Jeanette was taught it very young, but almost like the social norms are that, you know, women are supposed to be agreeable and not rock the boat, right? Meanwhile, as we see in this story, I mean, the men are like oftentimes like very predatory. And I mean, I'm not saying all men obviously are like predatory, but in her story, they're kind of like, shady like um morally suspect kind of people and when you groom i wouldn't we gotta i gotta be careful with that word but they kind of did groom her to you know go into these situations like this and if you're taught to be a people pleaser and then there's these you know people around you like you're gonna fall prey to that and um it's kind of like seeing how that conditioning like that plays out um it's it's very unfortunate but yeah it is uh good when people start to realize like hey i don't have to be agreeable i don't have to be a good sport and you know hopefully her story is like encouraging other people who may identify with that people pleasing that she doesn't always have to to do that something else that i just thought about is um Ariana actually came from another Nickelodeon show, too. So both of them were probably promised the same thing. Oh, you're going to have your own show. This is going to be yours. And they both end up having to share it. So that probably created a bunch of tension between them as well. Very good observation. So one of the things I definitely want to make sure we get to before we wrap up for today is that this section of the book, I think, had some glimmers of hope. Um, I'm sure the conclusion will hopefully give us a little bit more like a somewhat closure. I mean, a a memoir of a person who's in their 30s really doesn't have closure uh, because there's so much life left to live. But a couple of things that I noted were that she bought her first house. It did have some problems, but uh, I put down the quote. She says, I finally have a home that's free of dust, mold and hoarding. So I, I really like that part that she was able to through all of the struggle and everything like that to acquire herself a seemingly safe place and also a glimmer of hope was that she started therapy for alcohol eating disorder and her trauma but there's probably some other points in there that were hopeful and if anybody has anything to add definitely share uh didn't she start dating this new guy that she met or am i getting ahead of myself a little bit so yeah, she did um, get into a a relationship that was actually like seemed to be somewhat healthy, and like she's actually like able to like feel emotions and start to understand that she should be able to like have pleasure in a relationship. So we did kind of get some glimpses into that. Yeah, what I liked about that with Stephen, yeah, his name, is that when you in the beginning with her mom. There's all this control. There's all Jeanette has nothing of her own. She can't think for herself. She can't do anything for herself because she's a little kid. And then the next, you know, you jump however many years and her grandmother's yelling at her while she's at Costco 
And she just is very finite. Like you will not do this to me. And then she hangs up on her and blocks her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how huge is that? And then when Stephen, the part that I was just looking at is when Stephen goes to see her in LA and he notices that there's vomit on the toilet seat and he's like, do we have a problem? And she's like, no, it's just you smoke and I throw up. It's just something that we do. And he's like, yeah, that's not okay. And if you don't get help, then, you know, this isn't going to work. And she's looking at him and being like, really? And he's looking at her like, yeah, really? And then the last line in that chapter as well, shit. (laughs) And I just love that because like, there's something of value that she wants and she's actually like, okay, now I have to do something if I want to keep this. And that that's the hope that I saw in, in this part. And the only question, cause I was so happy that that was um, her situation, but it was like, who are you doing it for? And that it, it's nice when she will get to that point is like, you can't, you can't, I was glad he did it. And that was sometimes, how do you say it? Sometimes um, some individuals who aren't the best in your life, you look back later and say, I know they weren't good for me, but I needed them. Does that make sense? I, I learned something out of it. Even though I did this, she's going, she's starting to turn the corner because she wants to put, you know, she wants this guy in her life and it should be, I want to do it for me, but he serves a purpose. That's the best way I can say it for now. Yeah, he gave her a starting point. One of one of my favorite parts around this part of the book is like, uh, we can't handle a religious issue and a trauma issue at the same time. We're going to have to take turns. So I thought that was pretty funny and like a very adult thing that you wish everything could take a turn. <laughs> Definitely. I started out by saying that this was a lighter uh, section and it was for some, it, it, it didn't, quite stay on the same heavy things that it was last time it kind of went in a different direction but obviously as we unpacked it there were still a lot of like hard times and some new issues that popped up but i mean there's only a tiny bit left in the book so um hopefully it goes in a more hopeful uh direction like i said um it's it's not too common for um younger people um say i i'm pretty sure she's early to mid thirties by now to write a memoir, right? Because there's still so much more life left to live. But I, for my sake, cause I, I read so many memoirs and I read a lot of books. I, I hope that there's like some sense of closure, you know, cause you spend this all this time with this person, of course, that we've never met, but you feel like you're kind of like invested in her life. So I'm, I'm just hoping for kind of a little bit of closure to see like, Hey, you're on the, the right path to being okay. So any other like final thoughts on this section from anybody? No, I, I agree. I hope that, um, cause like you said, with, with such a young age, I'm hopeful for a positive outcome because we see so many of these, um, child actors that don't end up with the best outcome. Um, so I'm, I'm praying for her and I'm at, I'm proud of her. And I also appreciate the insight we received today in regards to the eating disorder. I mean, I had no idea. She gave, she is very vivid, but what you guys were saying today just even opened it up more to me. I appreciate it. And thank you for sharing that. 
Um, I think one of the, the things, if you're going to, at least for me personally, if I'm going to go through a trauma, the blessing in that is that um, with my faith, it allows me to pray better with people. And with a trauma, if you walk through a trauma, then you can actually be there for other people in ways that you wouldn't have been before. So not like I'm like signing up for trauma, <laughs> but um, I feel thankful that I could share tonight of the things that I went through personally that I related to. And like, it wasn't triggering as an, oh no, there's something like it was horrible for me. And I, it disturbed me. It was just like, wow, this is here. It is in black and white and I'm reading it and I feel these things. And so it's nice to know that somebody else could put it down in black and white and that we could kind of unpack that tonight is kind of nice. What I was going to say before, um, kind of how, um, to piggyback off of what, um, uh, Shaq had said is that, or I don't know if it, it might've been, uh, Angela actually, but kind of how she's able to, the, the silver lining is that she's able to use these adversities to like help other people. Um, I think, and we've shared enough, I think through the various episodes that we've done and stuff like that. But at least for me, um, living with panic disorder, which is anxiety and anxiety disorder, uh, it's truly, I mean, nothing could have been more beneficial for me specializing in helping people work with anxiety as a therapist than to be able to finish sentences for them and be like, oh yeah. And then you're, you know, your heart starts racing and you think you're having a heart attack and you start sweating and your hands feel cold. Like I'm explaining it to them and they're just like, their jaw is dropping and they're like, how do you know this? And I'm like, I literally had a panic attack last week. Like I lived with this. Um, so being able to, you know, use those really struggling experiences, but to help other people with it, it truly, you know, it looks like it's it's happening for Jeanette where she's able to tell her story and she's seeing the impact that it's making. Um, but it's also part of her healing journey just to not be keeping everything quiet like her whole life has been. So though it's been a tough book to get through, I'm I'm really it's been very enlightening. I mean, this is how families like this get away with it, is like the secrets and the like don't say anything and what's in our house is our problem and should not be for public consumption. So I think the more people that are talking about it and like again, like like I was saying last week, I just really respect her for putting it out there, especially the title that it is. There's a certain type of uh boldness that comes with that title. Um uh but yeah, I, I just think she's doing a really good job. And like, the only thing that they have is your silence. And that's really the only power that they have. So thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to join us back for part four, which is also the finale on this book. It'll be the first week of January, because uh, we're taking a week off for the holidays. So definitely stay tuned for that one. We will be discussing chapter 72 through the end of the book. So you're not going to want to miss it. Take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. 
And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.